This is the Negotiate X Podcast, show number 37, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Welcome to the NegotiateX Podcast. I am your host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. And with me today is my co-host, co-founder, excuse me, co-founder, Aram Denisian. Aram, introduce our guest for us. I'm going to do that because you sound a little tongue-tied today. But you I'm are sick. looking sharp, my okay? My voice is dark or deep. I'm just Very all over the place. Hey, welcome to adulthood, Nolan. Uh, <laughs> that, voice, that voice getting deep, that's that's a great thing. And, and for anyone who watches the videos, you should know that Nolan always dresses so sharp. Thank and you. I, and I don't. He was the one that really brings <laughs> the class to this program. But everybody probably knows that. I'm intentionally trying to dress athletic today, which is a challenge, but because our guest, uh, our, our guest is going to take us through some sports performance psychology. And so we're going to get there. This is going to be a fun program. I'm really excited for today's program. A few weeks ago, we had Mike Farrig on to talk about how we might learn from, you know, the world of marketing and how there may be applications to negotiations. Well, today we're going to step into another field outside, maybe the normal bounds of negotiation. And don't know exactly where that's going to lead, but I know we're going to learn a lot and have a lot of fun. So today our guest is a former Army football player. That's why if you're watching the video, I'm wearing my Army hat. My beast roommate was an Army football player. And ever since I've been a fan, some of my best students when I taught at West Point were, were Army football players. So it is a, a pleasure and an honor to welcome another one to our program today. We are joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Retired Andy Reese. Andy is a mental performance coach and an expert in leadership and the psychology of resilience and elite performance. As I mentioned, he's a West Point graduate and uh, with over 20 years in the military. During that career, he led soldiers in a variety of overseas missions to include combat operations in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Andy has a master's degree in exercise psychology with an emphasis in sport performance and sport and performance, I should say. He is also a presidential leadership scholar and a member of the American Psychological Association and the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. His research and coaching expertise is in evidence-based best practices of sport and performance psychology and various applied behavioral science disciplines with an emphasis on mental toughness and stress inoculation. Andy was one of the Army's first master resilience trainers and facilitators and helped launch the comprehensive fitness program. As a mental skills coach and consultant, he has worked with a wide range of, of clients ranging from professional sports teams, corporate leaders, first responders, and healthcare practitioners. Andy serves as the program director for the National Security Innovation Network at Texas A&M, Go Aggies. He also serves as a youth rugby coach and a troop leader uh, for Boy Scouts of America. He himself is an Eagle Scout. 
He and his wife, Katie, have been married for over 19 years. They have four extremely active children. Andy and I, our paths have crossed uh, throughout our military careers. We had the opportunity to serve together in, in Colorado. He helped me out of numerous times uh, when I, while I was teaching at the Air Force Academy. So with that, Andy, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Gentlemen, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. And I just want to comment on the, uh, the awesome haircut that Nolan has. You know, I'm very confident on how dapper he looks. And the, the bald beard look is outstanding. Aaron, I love your retirement beard. And uh, you're, you're a great friend. And it's, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Andy. Yep. And, and always, as you said, enjoy seeing another man that is bald and bearded on the show so that Aaron doesn't just give me shit all the time. Hey, bald, yeah, um, that's what you're here. Bald is what you here. Let's just get it right. <laughs> all right. So, Andy, we love to kick this thing off by first asking about your personal journey. And so basically, what exactly is the psychology of resilience and elite performance? And how did you get into this field? Sure. So when we think about psychology, I mean, it's a study of human behavior, right? Everyone knows that. And I think we traditionally think of, you know, mental health, right? So we think about the psychology of injury or illness or psychopathology, right? And that's really kind of the medical model. And then if we were to compare this to the physical side of human beings, that would be like medical doctors, right? So I'm injured, I have pathology, injury, illness, I have anxiety, depression. I go see a doctor, right? A clinician. Well, what if I have, you know, I want to prevent an injury. I want to be able to rehab to get back on the field or get back in the arena, as I say, right? Well, then you would probably go on the physical side. You would go to an athletic trainer, you know, someone who's a physical therapist, that type of thing too. Think about that as resilience, bouncing back from adversity, right? Bouncing back from an injury. So because of that adversity that I get better, right? And then the other aspect of that too, is you think about on the physical side, if I want to get bigger, faster, stronger, right? Then I go to a strength coach or a personal trainer, right? And that is the performance side of things. And so the opposite of that on the psychological spectrum or the mental side of who we are as humans is where I reside, right? So, I, so when I, you think about the, the psychology of elite performance, that's it's about, hey, what are the mental and emotional skills that allow people to be able to execute tasks at the upper range of their potential consistently, regardless of the scenario or the outcomes? That's beautiful. And how'd you get started in this field? Yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of goes back to when I was playing Army football. And so, as you guys know, Aaron and I crossed paths. He was in BSNL when I was in the Center for Enhanced Performance. So it goes back to 1989. That's when the, the West Point Center for Enhanced Performance was founded by uh, Colonel Lewis Choka. The first captain to work there was uh, General Robert Brooks Brown, who just retired recently. And the idea was to take this psychology that made elite leaders, performers in sports, and whether it's Olympic, professional sports, it's a field that's been around about 100 years, a little more than that. But how do we bring this into the military to deliberately develop these intangible attributes to help make future army leaders better at what they do in and out of combat. So how do we develop the intangible attributes of leaders, right? So BSNL was doing that and we were taking a different approach from the performance psychology side of things. And so by the time I got there in 1997, it just was another resource available to us as cadets that you guys can relate to. So sophomore year, changed position. So I was a fullback. What better, what better office to be in, to be in the triple option, right? You know, to be the human battery ram and be the first yeah. option, the triple <laughs> option. I was loving it. There you go. Positions on me. And now I'm in my sophomore year, which you guys know, yuck year, it sucks. The yuck year sucks because it's the hardest year. You're getting your butt kicked academically. I just switched positions. I was struggling. So at the time, my coach who played for the University of Michigan in the Rose Bowl, 
uh, was a very elite performer himself, was a fan of the West Point CEP. He referred me to Captain Carl Olson. Uh, shout out to Carl, who's at uh, Penn State, the athletic department now. And it's just started working with him, just kind of like you guys did, just like you worked, like you worked with Aram at when you know he was a captain and major. And we started doing one-on-one training. I started learning these mental skills that I'd, you know, I maybe had some idea about what mental toughness was, but then all of a sudden I'm I'm learning, I'm getting a, a lexicon, I'm getting a process, a system that develops into specific attitudes and behaviors that then turn to at the be to habits that could help me get out of my own way on the football field. Because the, my biggest thing was. You know, first of all, my my concentration was all over the place, right? I had a really difficult time transitioning from the cadet area up to the football field. You know, so developing routines, where to put my attention, when it needs to be, where it needs to be there. Then I had some confidence issues too. So I was very much in my own head, couldn't get out of my own way. I was overthinking things. I was learning a whole new position and playing at a really high level. And oh, by the way, you know, no kidding, right? Uh, understatement of the year, West Point's kind of hard, right? So I had all these other things that were distracting me. So all those led to like this uh, this challenge that turned into an opportunity that then became a set of skills that I was I was practicing. And again, I was in survival mode at West Point. But what I didn't realize is that when I graduated, now guess what happens? 9-11 happens. I'm in the class of 2001. All of a sudden, we've been training, and Aram knows this full well because he was already commissioned four years ahead of me, right, Aram? Yeah. You know, he, he's already, we're already preparing for kind of this, you know, this fight in the Balkans, right? You know, and so, and we also were fighting the way that we were linearly to where we have overmatch and overwhelming firepower in terms of air to ground integration, right? So now all of a sudden we went from a conventional fight to transition to at the time was stability and support operations. So I was an MLR's platoon leader. We were in the race to Baghdad and all of a sudden we had to make that pivot. And then now all of a sudden we're, we're facing an asymmetric threat. You guys know it really, really, really well that we're fighting an enemy that doesn't fight fair. And all of a sudden we're not prepared for, we're not, we have not trained for what we prepared on. So what did I fall back on? If I can't train for the operating environment in the situation, what I fell back on was my attitudes and my behaviors. Hmm. And I, I quickly found that my confidence was by setbacks, my composure in extreme circumstances, my concentration in extreme circumstances, my situational awareness, all affected how I made decisions on a moment to moment, day to day basis that that could lead to whether or not my soul, not only do we accomplish the mission, whether my soldier were to come home alive or not. And you guys appreciate this because you've been there, but for everyone else who has not been in the military, quickly you realize there's, there's no field manual or training plan to be able to develop mental skills. You know, FM 6-22 or ADP 6-22 talks about confidence like 66 times, but nowhere in that manual does it say how to develop confidence, right? But we know how important confidence is for great leaders. Great leaders are confident, make better decision makers. Great leaders make better, uh, who are confident, not only still confidence in themselves, but confidence in others when they enter a negotiation, right? So these are just some of the reasons why this inside out approach to developing the intangibles leadership became really, really important to me. And it, it really kind of highlighted this idea that, hey, I had to train my brain and help my soldiers train their brain as much as they train their body and much as we trained cohesion as a team and as much as, you know, we were trying to influence the people that we were trying to help in Iraq and Afghanistan or across the world. So Andy, you're describing maybe in a general sense, things that we, we would call, or I know you call intrapersonal skills it's very specifically. I mean, do you have like, what are these intrapersonal skills that, you, that are essential for people to learn to make, to make better decisions? I love that connection. No, absolutely. I think there's a, there's quite a few of them. I mean, the, in sports psychology, which is not the only field that I borrow from, we, a lot of times think about, Hey, well, let's pick confidence again. Right. So 
talk about self-talk. I talk about selective perception, about interpretation, about what happens to me, you know, and having a strong mental filter as far as what I allow that's useful for me. I understanding, you know, what my thoughts are, how do I separate myself from my thoughts? And then how do I get composure in terms of things like, you know, using breathing, using present moment focus to then not allow my emotions to control me, uh, but I'm in control of my emotions. And then in other words, like, what are the things that allow me to have self-awareness and self-regulation from moment to moment, you know, that allow that creates what I call you becoming the barometer, right? And I think this is really relevant to the negotiations construct, right? Because if you can control your attitudes and your behaviors, right? When everything else is chaotic going around you, whether you're in negotiation or not, you if you can have a deliberate and intentional process in terms of how you think and how you act and react in deliberate and effective ways, that's going to lead to an, op- an optimal outcome nine times out of 10 or more often than not. Yeah. And certainly allow you to respond better. Right. And, and one thing I hear you saying is it doesn't sound like it's, it's like it doesn't sound like this is the elimination of those emotions. It's about managing them. I mean, they, they, right. they're good. They're, they're there. And we've got to learn how to manage them. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, and I think it's kind of understanding how fundamentally how humans work. And, I, and I'm happy to share this model with, with you all. Right. And I think it's relevant to kind of what's going on in social media and the news. Right. With the whole Will Smith and Chris Rock slap incident. Right. You know, and without taking sides, what do we see on the surface, uh, you know, in terms of performance? We tur- we look at performance is really the intersection between a behavior and an outcome. Right. And then there's a result right there. So that's about let's say that's 10 percent of the equation. And if humans are like iceberg, we see the behaviors, all, all that's on top. Well, what's beneath the surface? Right. And a lot of times in the military, we say intent. But really what's below that is the attitudes, how we think, what's going on between our ears, our emotions or how we feel, not only from an emotional standpoint, but also physiologically what's going on inside ourselves. The next order level of things, it has to do with things like your motivation, your purpose, and then at the core of it is your values, which are your principles, right? And I know this is a big part of what we learned at West Point is the character development piece that kind of gets lost out in our career development after that too. But if 90% of who we are as human beings is what's going on beneath the surface, the key task to be successful in negotiation is for you to penetrate as far as you can based on what you know and what you can prepare for down into that iceberg of that human being. Because if we're just relying on behaviors alone to be successful in a negotiation, chances are you're not going to be successful. So I think you have to understand how that works because how we think affects how we, how we feel, how we feel affects what we do, how we do affects how we perform. And that's a cycle called psychological momentum that could help us and it could hurt us. But what we can always control is how we think and how we respond. That's a great model. I'm really curious. Can you actually train this? And if you can, do you have metrics that you're looking for to know that, to be able to see that somebody's progressing and improving? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the good news too. And I think that's what's been great about behavioral science in general, especially you know the last 50 years is that, I mean, obviously there's no, there's no causation, right? And we know that because we were in, and when you deal with the people business, there's no cause and effect relationship. There is a, there's a relationship, right? So in terms of how things are influencing each other in terms of known variables or variables that we can control. So I think there's some really good psychometrics that are out there. I don't think there's one size fits all. It kind of depends on the behavioral outcomes that you're looking at. But ultimately, you know, we want to measure the behaviors, you know, that we're talking about. That's really that 10% that is driven and influenced by the rest of that 90% in the iceberg model that I described. Uh, I like a few of them that are out there too in the baseball world. And I know this is in corporate side as well too, is, uh, you know, in terms of like personality, looking like the big five and the Neo 
for example, they're, they're valid and they're reliable. Another one that I personally like I use in my practice is the mental toughness questionnaire because it's based on the 4C model that I know we're going to talk about. And then there's a short and long form of that. There's one for leaders as well, too. And I, and I like it because it's simple. It's the construct that I knew. It applies to all the arenas that I work in as well. But there's a lot of really cool uh, science that's going out there that I'm, I'm involved in on the side in terms of the assessment and selection of professional athletes that really borrows from how we assess and select the attitudes and behaviors from elite tactical athletes, you know, in our special operations community. And those those best practices that have been validated over years are now being exported out into professional sports and, and also into the corporate arena, like for executive search and so on and so forth, but also to kind of find the right fit for your organization based on whatever your mission is. Yeah, I think finding the right fit is is crucial, especially for any of the organizations. You kind of mentioned this 4C model. I think we'll get into that right in a second. I first kind of want to talk about this aspect of mental toughness. So I know that Aaron and I had talked kind of on the pre-show about what, what are we going to title this episode? And I think we decided to call it uh, Approaching Negotiations from the Inside Out. So can you share with us a little bit about the connection that you see between someone's ability to influence their own thinking first before they can really influence anyone else's thinking. Do you mind if I tell a story kind of lead up? Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think this is really kind of how where I entered this space in because, you know, although I have a sport and performance psychology background and I try to impact leaders specifically, one of the things I realized about the field, it was very individually focused. And as a leader, as we know, it's about influencing other people. So I found that a little bit lacking. And so I was trying to find the intersection between what happens with me on the inside in terms of self-awareness and self-regulation, but then beyond self or what's interpersonal skills, I was trying to understand what the art and science of influence was. And it was something I was very curious about. And about the time that I left West Point, I went down to seven special forces group. And like Aram, I was a, a special operations support soldier. I was a fire support officer. So my job was to bring in indirect fires from mortars, artillery, bombs, and missiles off of rails and to jump out of airplanes with green berets and, and put warheads on enemy foreheads, right? It was great. You, what more do you want? And stand up a special forces battalion from scratch was just an amazing opportunity as, as a leader, especially when not being a green beret. And it, what was cool about it is that I had some really transformational leaders who were very progressive and forward thinking. Um, one of them was, uh, his name is Colonel Marty Schmidt. I think he's getting ready to retire. Shout out to him. His dad was a psychologist when he grew up and he had this idea. We had, we were building this fourth battalion from scratch, right? And as you guys remember at the time, we we're building force of everything in order to meet the demands of fighting wars on two fronts. So we we're building fourth brigades, fourth battalions. We were the last of the five active duty special forces group. Aaron and I served in 10th group together as well, too. They were one of the first ones. We were the last one to do a, a fourth battalion. So we're talking about 433 people in 18 months, standing up from scratch and sent it to Afghanistan to deploy and fight in combat, right? Good luck. Well, we're getting all these new team leaders who were like us. They were from another branch, another functional area, and they became, they spent two years becoming a Green Beret, and they were brand new in, in this role. And now they're deploying to combat in this role. And at the time, for most of the war, a lot of what the Special Forces mission was doing was counterterrorism, right? So we think about direct action and shooting people in the face and coming in the middle of the night, landing on the X and the objective, and and then, you know, you're, you're on the ground for 30 minutes to an hour, then you're gone. Well, that's not exactly what those guys do. They train, advise, and assist, and they're working by, through, and with an indigenous local partner. In this case, is the Afghan local peace, the Afghan commandos, Afghan special forces, right? So guess what? 
the art and science of influence is imperative and critical to their success. And here you have a population of leaders who don't understand the core competency of what influence is all about. So we had the opportunity through a contracted gentleman, Dr. Stuart Diamond, wrote Getting More. Say what you want about that model. I like yours better, but that's that's we'll, we'll leave that for another time. You know, but this is my first entry point into negotiations. And my boss said, okay, you're this, you know, guy who just got down to teaching at West Point, you're a psychology guy. I want you to bring this in and incorporate this too. And I want you to assess its effectiveness and what the feedback was. And so we did, brought Dr. Diamond in and, and I was like, this guy's going to get slaughtered by these guys. And Green Berets are like wolves. This guy is a corporate dude coming in, working with like Green Berets. My boss set it up. He's like, he one of the most skeptical people to see whether or not this, this training is going to be really effective. And we spent three days together. And I got to tell you, like I was blown away, not only the relevance and the applicability, but you know, the feedback from these guys who a lot of them were, had been in combat, you know, six, seven times about where has this been my entire career in terms of my core competencies to be effective in combat in a green, as a green beret or like a combat coach in this case too. And it was so cool because I, it made me better. And it really kind of allowed, it, it brought in this intrapersonal skills that I had just learned about in terms of the intrapersonal side too. So really it kind of made this other piece of the puzzle when you think about emotional intelligence, that everything beyond self in terms of interpersonal influence with, of what a leader does effectively towards common goals started to come into place. And it was like the light bulbs came on. And what was even cooler was that when I was deployed, I would go do these, you know, go with my boss and I'd go to all these fire bases all over Southern Afghanistan. And it kind of became this cool, like little thing, like, you know, to where we had this own, our own hidden language and lexicon. They're like, Hey, Major Reese, like, Hey, I used negotiation the other day when I was talking to my wife and she was buying a house, you know, or <laughs> I, I used it in my Shura. I used it on my teammates, you know, this stuff really works. Like, and it was like this kind of like tongue in cheek, really, really cool thing. So when I got back, I was like, man, this is, there's something to this. And so then I had the opportunity later on to bring it back to the conventional army. And, you know, so, so all that's to say is that I, I think that going back to the original question, you know, is that uh, I, I think this skill is really, really important. And I think that you have to be able to enter into it first by being able to negotiate with yourself, right? Yeah. So we're talking about our playbook here and all of this is really outwardly focused, right? But what's really cool about this is you could flip the script and the lens and use this to be able to then, you know, how do I negotiate with myself, right? And if I, if I approach a negotiation from the inside out in terms of how I think about how I perceive the other people, what is their interests? What's in it for them? I, well, first of all, I know myself first, right? I, I know what my goals are. I know what my level of commitment is. I know what I'm willing to compromise in order to reach the optimal outcome or the BATNA, right? If I can get that really, really solid and I know how I wanna show up to negotiation with empathy, with openness, and, and the willingness to be able to then expand the pie and not and not shrink it, or just be an asshole, you know, then that is really really important to your successful, right? Because ultimately, in negotiation, you don't control the other person. At best, you can influence them, but if you can't control yourself in terms of how you think, what your emotions are, and then what transpires, even when things go sideways, you're dead in the water, right? So that's why I say you got to be able to negotiate with yourself first from the inside out to be effective. Yeah. And that, that feels, I know we've talked before, right? Mindset. It's a place that Nolan and I will start when we work with clients, certainly a place I work with students taking on your own, your own self first before you can try to affect someone else's mindset. Uh, and I would assume that you see a lot of challenges for folks, maybe resistance to 
to doing that, to taking themselves on first because they, the, the out, the problem is always outside of us. It's never inside of us. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the mindset is incredibly important. A mindset is a pattern of thinking, right? You know, and it's neurological in nature. I think those are like the super highways in our mind to, to where you can actually buy how you think. So for example, the trusting and training mindset, right? So we think about trust is a great example. I mean, ultimately you're trying to build trust and rapport and we talk about that, right? But to build trust and confidence are closely interrelated, right? So if you are willing to trust yourself, in other words, when I'm showing up in, in I'm, if my, I'm in the training mindset, then I'm, I'm thinking actively, right? You know, as I'm kind of going over my script, it'd be like, if I show up the negotiation and I'm like looking at my playbook, like I'm Andy Reid calling plays on the sideline, <laughs> that's not going to be authentic, right? Because now I'm going to have an active brain and leads to a tight body and I'm not going to be focusing on one thing, which maybe should be listening or should be trying to, hey, what is what is the goals that we're trying to achieve here, right, too? So, you know, if you look at it as a, you look at a negotiation as a performance, you know, there's a four-phase approach to that. You got to have a plan, how you prepare, how you execute, how you assess. Well, you're more in the training mindset, you know, to where I have an active mind that allows me to be able to critical, analytical, judgmental. I should be doing that with my playbook, which is, this is an outstanding tool, by the way. I love this. I totally Thanks. stole it. And I'll give you Thanks. credit the first three times. <laughs> Thanks. By the time I get to preparation, I should be more in the trusting mindset, which is more in, in line with being, you know, uh, letting go, synthesis, where I'm having fun, where time slows down a little bit too. And I'm thinking about one thing and I have a quieting of the brain if I were to hook you up to an fMRI, right? Well, there's a way that you can rehearse that. So by the time I'm executing, I should really just be thinking about one thing. And that's to be in the present moment focus. And I'm listening, I'm engaging, I'm mirroring, I'm matching, I'm doing things authentically. Uh, and then when I'm done, now, you know, when it's over, the negotiation is over, now I go back in, into the really high on the training mindset to where I, now I'm reflecting back and critical, analytical, judgmental. I'm looking at the game footage in my mind. I can use imagery, which is a mental skill, to look back and use all of my senses to be able to synthesize what just happened. If you're going to get feet, you definitely got to get feedback from somebody else who's also in the negotiation. Maybe it's a witness if you're training in this purpose to be able to, who's grading you and giving you that feedback. And then you're taking that feedback and you're taking the information that's useful and you're moving it to feed forward that goes back into your plan, right? So I think there's there's a way to incorporate mental skills in that four-phase approach from an interpersonal side that'll make you just as effective as interpersonal skills when you're executing your negotiations game plan. Yeah, and for, for folks that aren't watching the video that are listening, Andy's holding up our prep sheet. So thanks for that. We were huge believers in, in the role of preparation. You know, and everybody always wants to get to the game, the conduct piece, the table. Uh, I'm sure that's the same way in sports. And yet there's so much importance in preparation. We talk about four phases of the negotiation game, preparation, conduct, measuring your success review. So it's similar there. You've, you were sharing with us beforehand the 4C model, framing mental toughness. Could you maybe share that framework in a little bit more depth and maybe how it enables uh, someone to put their best self forward, regardless of the conditions or the situation they're facing? Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, I love this. I found this through a good friend of mine, Dr. Mike Gerson. Shout out to him. And uh, this actually comes from Dr. Peter Clow, um, who's a professor. For, he's from Scotland and studied in, in England. Also came from the work and research from Dr. Jim Lair. He's a very famous sports psychologist known from the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. And these gentlemen kind of came up with this idea about, hey, what are the components that come up that are that are 
the core competencies of mental toughness? What are the four factors uh, that really matter in terms of, you know, mentally and emotionally being able to execute those tasks at the upper range of your potential, regardless of circumstances and, and outcomes? So the four C's are control, uh, commitment, challenge, and, and confidence. And I'll have that up for your, your readers as well, too. Um, it's, it's delivered through, uh, it's proprietary to AQR International. And uh, I think it's a great model, too, because it's really easy to remember. And I could, you know, deep dive into those. Uh, and I think the ones that jump out when you guys actually look at your tools uh, are things like having to do with, you know, um, commitment, for example. You know, so we can we can dip right. into whatever you guys want to talk about. Yeah. So under under commitment, you talk about kind of goal orientation, achievement yeah. orientation. Is that keeping our eyes on what we're trying to achieve and not getting distracted by by the noise? Yeah, hundred percent. Like when you look at the research or the, the efficacy of mental skills, and this really comes from social psychology, like goal setting is what it's called. But I like to call it goal pursuit, right? The goal setting, especially coming from Locke and Latham, their their research is amazing. It's one of the most efficacious mental and social skills that there that there are. And it's interesting because like in in popular psychology goals have like gotten this bad name for whatever reason, because mainly people are focusing on the SMART acronym, which is like describing the destination. So can you imagine, you know, someone showing up to your hometown and you give them directions and all you're doing is like giving them a really good target description of like, oh, the house is blue and it's two stories and it's got green gables and it's got a two car garage. Um, good luck. See you later. You know, it's like, you know, that's what that's what a SMART goal is. But really what it's the goal pursuit is about the process, right? And I think that's what I love, the, the metaphor that I used to love to talk about, and this is your guys' game, not mine, is I, I used to talk about negotiation being going like on a road trip. And I think that you have to start with what Stephen Covey talked about, which is the having the end in mind. What is the outcome that I am trying to achieve as a result of that? What are the effects in my old world, in the fires community, in, in your old community, but that we want to affect. And it was really about behavior change somehow, trying to change attitudes and behavior. So what are the effects I'm trying to achieve? What is the destination we're trying to get to? Then that kind of frames as far as where we're, we start to backwards plan from there in terms of what is the process to get there? What are the waypoints that are along the way? And then how do I want to show up and start on this journey? And inevitably, like if I have some really good te techniques and I'm using this game plan that you guys have, Hey, inevitably, like Murphy's going to show up, right? Things are going to go sideways. Maybe someone may get hated. Somebody may way and walk away. There may be a curveball that happens, right? It's just like going to combat, right? It's just like being in, in the VUCA operating environment that we're in now. You know, you may be, you know, up there telling it what you think is a perfectly good joke. And someone who's about to get an Oscar that night is going to show up and slap you on national television. Yeah. What are you going to do about <laughs> it, right? You know, and so I think that if you have a really good game plan, and you're psychologically flexible with keeping the end in mind and being empathetic and compassionate, right? Because empathy is being able to understand the pictures in the other person's heads, understanding what are their needs, what's in it for them. And you keep that in mind, then you're more likely to reach a, a, an optimal outcome, right? Towards what you want. But it's ultimately like, that, that goes back to the measurement of success. Goal pursuit isn't necessarily about achievement. It's not about, you know, being able to, to what you get out of it, right? and determining, you know, was I successful or not. It's really, you know, and this is where the growth mindset comes in. It's really about how did I develop this connection through this relationship that allowed me to show back up, you know, so if maybe if I didn't achieve what I wanted the first time, I've now developed a connection that will increase the likelihood that I'll be able to achieve more of my goals and more of their goals later on, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. I mean, I, we spend a lot of time talking about measure of success as to, to think more robustly about it than than we so often do, and then executing that through process. And I think I, I really appreciate your comment uh, with regards to to the process. You know, and I know there's this three other C's. I, I don't know how far we'll get into them. I did want to ask you as you think about challenge, and I'm you know looking at the model, risk orientation, learning orientation. Failure in negotiation occurs. Yeah. Not no one is ever going to achieve a hundred percent success rate every single time in in a negotiation. I get asked by students. It's kind of a funny way the question gets phrased, but the question is, how do you deal with rejection? I don't think they're talking about my the history of my dating life. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I think they're I, I think they're asking. So what what do you do? What do you, what do you how how do you deal when failure. And I don't know if that falls underneath the, the challenge piece, but how do you take a, like rather than a risk minimizing approach right. an opportunity maximizing approach? Yeah. Like, again, this kind of goes back to the growth mindset, but I think it's what it, the essence is, is that am I, am I choosing to see everything that I encounter in this process of the negotiation as an opportunity to get better regardless of the outcomes. Right. And so, and when things go wrong, regardless of the consequences, what is the explanatory style that I have? What is the argument that I'm having between my ears that is allowing me then to say, okay, right, this didn't turn out the way that I wanted to. And again, I'm looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020. I, I did this well. This is what I need to say. And this is what I need to improve. You know, man, I really screwed that up and I left a lot on the table. Or, hey, this, this really left us in a place to where I don't even know if I can recover from this. And we've all been in like a place where you've had catastrophic loss of rapport. And I'll just be vulnerable for a minute. Like when I've had catastrophic loss, whereas when I lost my cool, like I'm a very passionate guy. I'm, I, I'm very in touch with my emotions and people's emotions. There's a shadow side of that. It's called anger, right? And I have like a, you know, very could go zero to 60 really, really quick. And I, uh, I always struggle with that, you know, and I read about people like Eisenhower, which like you never would think from historical figure to Iran's bio that Eisenhower had a, I mean, when we look at him as this iconic guy with his hands on his hips and the smoking jacket, and, you know, and he's he's talking to the paratroopers or for D-Day. Could you ever imagine him being a guy who lost his temper? No, no. But like the people closest to him talked about this. It was it, it was his Achilles heel, you know, so it made me feel better about myself. And I'm not saying I'm Eisenhower. He was an <laughs> army fullback. He's a, he was an army fullback, by the way. So, I mean, and he now the, the head was. <laughs> resemblance is there so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's about where the that's about the resemblance stops i mean he was he's an amazing leader and i can only pale in comparison but, which i want to even compare it. but long story short is that i think that you know when i've lost my cool yeah and then now i've completely undermined any rational thought you know and regulation that's gonna you know i i've now completely lost the control element of what i'm going into the you know so leverage is not even possible because i i'm not you know, I might as well be, you know, building a sandcastle, you know, with the tie coming in. Right. right. So I, I think those are some of the things that are really, really important for us to is to understand about, you know, how well we can, how our wellness and our, our awareness of ourselves and our regulation of ourselves is that is the underpinning as far as how well we influence others. Everyone, Nolan here. I'm going to have to jump in and end our conversation on today's podcast. Make sure you join us next week as we finish up our discussion with Coach Reese. Thank you for listening to NegotiateX Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. 
If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.